Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. Thanks so much for tuning in. Every time I open up TikTok or Instagram or YouTube, for some reason, I'm inundated by some video, some lesson about grinding, you know, the Gary V mentality, pushing through it. And regardless of my current circumstances, which I believe to be pretty good, I convince myself I need to work harder. I need to grind harder because that is the essence of accomplishment. And I got to say, it doesn't always result in the best outcomes. Maybe I'll succeed. Maybe I'll accomplish. But at what cost? That's why I wanted to have this week's guest on the show. This week, we are talking to Steve Magnus. He is a world-renowned expert on performance he is the co-author of Peak Performance and The Passion Paradox. And specifically, we're talking about his brand new book called Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong and the Surprising Science of Real Toughness. Steve received his undergraduate degree from the University of Houston and a graduate degree from George Mason University. Once upon a time, he ran a four minute and one second mile in high school, which at the time was the sixth fastest high school mile in U.S. history. He's an executive coach, a performance coach, and an author. I believe that his take and what we talk about in our episode today is a new way, a healthier way, and a better way to look at the truth, which is we do have to do hard things, but in the right manner. If you like what you hear, you know where you can find us, smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. I actually got a listener email maybe a week or two ago, which I, I have to respond to, one of the nicest things I've ever received, just stating that, you know, 
they love the show, but it's one of the only podcasts where it's hard for them to listen in the background. So they have to pick times to where they can actually focus and absorb. And I'll tell you, that means we're doing it right. So feel free to reach out. Tell us what you think. Tell us how we should change and get better. If you thoroughly enjoy it, we could use your support. Patreon.com slash smart people podcast. Shout out to our most recent Patreon supporter, Alex. Really appreciate it. Get ad-free episodes and more by supporting on Patreon. Let's get into our episode with Steve as we talk about his brand new book, Do Hard Things, why we get resilience wrong and the surprising science of real toughness. Enjoy. I really wanted to talk to you, and here's why. I feel like I have a propensity to shy away from hard things. And as I've gotten older, I've realized that it is a value that I have. Uh, we interviewed Dan Pink, actually, and, and we were talking about regret. And some of the things I've regretted most are not putting my all into things, despite unlikely outcomes and challenges. So that was the main purpose. And I just want to ask you, what is important about doing hard things? So I think we, I think actually you kind of nailed uh, a large part of it, which is when we take on challenges, we almost have to shed this facade that we carry around and we are almost exposed. And because of that, it makes us feel incredibly vulnerable. And because of that, our brain often defaults to that protect mechanism which could be physical protection, but more often than not, it's psychological protection of saying, oh, I don't want my ego hurt. Oh, I don't want to fail at this thing that I've really tried hard to succeed at. And because of that, that's often where the growth comes from because we've, we've let go of everything else. We have to do this really difficult thing and like figure out how to navigate it. And the one thing that I'd say is that we often think that the growth comes from doing the difficult thing and then succeeding. But I actually think it comes from just doing the difficult thing, putting yourself out there, and then just trying to figure it out. And even if you don't succeed, even if you quote unquote fail, you'll still find that there's so much growth that comes and learning that comes from that moment that you start to see that the value is actually and like putting yourself in difficult moments and then seeing, you know, how do I figure this one out? How do I navigate through it? Despite a fear of failure and doing hard things, I, I, I've taken a pretty odd path throughout my life. And I think a lot of people do. And I do it for the sake of growth, knowing that there's value on the opposite side. The older I get, though, sometimes I wonder, what is that value? Why do we even honestly need to grow? Why can't we just survive and get through it and get to the end? I, I think it's the human problem and the human condition. Because if you look at every aspect of our life, from both the physical and psychological standpoint, it essentially follows this pattern of we need to experience some sort of stress and then adapt to it, and then grow from it. Now, not everything does, but if you look at athletically, why do people try and get faster or stronger muscles or what have you? Sure, maybe it's to compete in a sport, 
But often it's that natural progress where you see, okay, I'm getting better at this. Same thing when we look at hobbies and pursuits. If you look at musical pursuits, not everyone's going to make a lot of money off of being a musician, but people still pursue it. Why? It provides this natural outlet where it's like, oh, I'm going to struggle with this thing for a while, but I'm going to progress and get, and get better. And to me, even if you look at some of the broader psychological theories, for instance, self-determination theory, what's one of the key you know, pieces of that? Competence. What is competence? Making progress, seeing that you can grow in something, feeling like you can get better. And I think it, it's almost like we're kind of biologically wired for this because we have all these reward mechanisms or all these hormonal outputs that occur in these moments that essentially say, oh, yeah, like growth is good. Getting better at something is good. Like feeling like you're stagnating does not often feel that good. Now, am I saying like we need to grow in everything? No, I think it was um, the neuroendocrinologist Robert Sapolsky who put this really well. He said, we need to feel like, and I'm paraphrasing, but we need to feel like we are growing and achieving in something. And for some that might be in the workplace and others that might be, hey, I am the best player on the comp- company softball team. And, and that's okay. If we think of it as potentially unavoidable, then we don't necessarily have to question the reason or the rationale behind it. And I don't know if everybody questions it. I tend to think like five levels beyond often what is necessary. You know, why question it if you're going to do it anyways? Meaning I know for a fact most people are not content just being day in and day out. They'll, they'll do that for a while and then you watch people add complexity, even if they can't answer why. And I think it's what you're saying. It's something internal, physiological, rooted in being human. The reason we're top of the food chain, we can't help but to want to progress. Exactly. And, you you know, perhaps the best place you see this is after people retire. Because you would think like, okay, I've made my money. I have my nest egg. Like I'm set for the next whatever, you know, years. And often people think like, oh, I'm going to go, you know, go on a beach and just relax for the next 15, 20 years. But they don't. Right. They pick up hobbies or other pursuits or have something else that they feel like they're kind of contributing or making progress towards. And often if you don't, you you get kind of restless to a degree. And I think this again It's something about being human, and I don't know the sciences or the psychology as well, but just think of it as the ability to explore was central for being a a human out on the savanna, right? Right. We had to survive, and part of that was exploring, exploring for food, exploring for resources, exploring for whatever. If you look at fast forward into a... you know, our, our history. There's a reason we crossed the Atlantic Ocean to find, you know, North America. It's this, and there's a reason we went westward as Americans. Like there's this deep, almost like need for progress or exploration that is just kind of ingrained in us. And I'm not saying again that it needs to be in every aspect of your life, 
it's very good to be able to sit and be content with certain things. But I think it's almost like we have to satisfy this itch we have. And it's better that you are being intentional on, okay, how am I satisfying this itch? Versus just saying, okay, I'm going to leave it up to everything and just like let my mind or body kind of satisfy this itch or pull me in these directions, which may not be something that you want to do. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the intentionality because, of course, we're going to get into the, the meat of this is how do we do hard things? How are we currently potentially thinking about it incorrectly based on common wisdom and whatnot? But how important is it to first stop and identify what do I want to accomplish and what hard things am I choosing to engage in? It's vital. Absolutely vital. And actually, there's some fascinating research on, on, on intentionality around like our goals and our pursuits that really gets at this, is whenever we find or feel like we have something imposed upon us, so let's say, you know, you have a boss who says, here is your goal, or a coach who says, like, you're going to try and lift this much weight. Whenever we have an imposed goal on us, we don't persist as long. We're more likely to give up we're more likely to have kind of this negative ruminating self-talk around things when we feel like instead of having an imposed, when we're intentional and it feels authentic and aligning with our self, then all of those things are the opposite. We persist longer. We're able to handle it better. We're able to cope with the difficulties that come with it. All good things. So to me, like that intentionality is so important. And to get to that intentionality, often what we need is the self-awareness to do the work to say, okay, what is it we really want to pursue? What is it we really want to go after? And any parent of a teenager can tell you this, right? Or a young, younger um, person is if you try and impose like, hey, you're going to be the best soccer player or the best violinist ever. It, it backfires most of the time. Sure, every once in a while it might work, but like it backfires because it's not, it's not their dream. It's not their goal. They're not choosing it. You're forcing it upon them. And eventually things that are forced upon us, like when the going gets tough, we kind of give up on them because it doesn't have that underlying meat or driver to propel us through the really challenging moments. A lot of people that listen to this show, if, if you're listening, you likely have various interests. You're probably a generalist and you also believe in human growth and development. The challenge with that is hard things require time, effort, engagement, a, a lot of energy. How do you narrow down the things or the hard things you are going to choose to do? My solution, and I think it's also what the research says, if you look at it, is, is two different things. First, if you're that generalist, have something relatively hard. It doesn't have to be incredibly demanding, but something relatively in your and hard in your life that you can do consistently on a weekly basis, at least. Meaning, for me, I'm a lifelong runner. I'm not competing anymore, but I still make sure I run and then once or twice a week, I, I still make sure that run isn't just a jog, but I'm going to go push myself a little bit. Maybe not to, to the well, but just something that reminds me of like, oh, yeah, I want to quit. Like, this really sucks, and I got to navigate through this. 
And that's that's my small hard thing to just again almost prime the brain to remember what it's like to struggle. And then on the bigger thing, what I look at it is it's almost like seasonality of my life. Is I'm a journalist, I'm going to explore a lot of different things, but at different seasons of my life, something is going to be take precedence and something is going to be emphasized. And if I can do that, it allows me to maybe dive deep into the thing and struggle with it. So, for instance, in when I'm in book writing mode, I know that is the main thing. And I often have, again, 10 other projects. But because it's the main thing I really want to struggle with, then in book writing mode, every morning from, let's say, 8 to 11 a.m., those three hours are dedicated to that writing and struggling with it no matter what you know, during my weekdays, because like, I need to have that the rest of the afternoon, like I will save for all the other projects that I want to think about and whatever, but I need to have that moment. And the last thing I'd say on this topic is, you know, to me, it's, it's copy the, the kindergartners or the first graders. If you've ever, if you have young kids or you've ever worked with young kids, what you often see is they, they dabble a whole heck of a lot until they find something that is interesting and then for the like that week or that month or whatever that period they are all in on it they're like i am a policeman and i'm going to be a policeman and this is what it is but what's interesting is they don't get stuck on that for life you know a week or a month later they're like you know forget this i'm going to be a fireman now and then they like go deep into that and i think you know, we can learn a lot from that, especially journalists, is it's like not only being journal on the surface level, but also give yourself those moments where it's like, okay, I'm going to just dive into this and like, let's see what it is. And eventually I'll pop back out. But part of the work is diving into it. Do you have young kids? No, I don't yet. But my wife is a, a, is a elementary school teacher. So I learn a lot from, from her on this stuff. This episode is brought to you by Rocket Money. I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now, I use Rocket Money, and it does all of that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with a few taps. I love how the dashboard shows me this month's spending compared to last month's, so I can clearly see my spending habits. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com smart. That's rocketmoney.com smart. One last time, rocketmoney.com slash smart i'm like how do you know you, you i'm like you must how do you know it's just crazy because I, i've got a seven-year-old and a four-year-old my seven-year-old uh as of two weeks ago got into pokemon go 
He's loved Pokemon for a while, but Pokemon Go. And now you're really helping me think through this. I mean, number one, it's insane, the level of obsession. It's insane. And I'm like, I'm here for it, right? Let's go. And I we go for walks, and I'm taking him into the town later so he can find all this stuff. But here's what uh, I love and what you're highlighting for me. I'll I'll tell him, hey, you should watch some videos on it. Watch how to take over a gym. Watch how to find Pokestops. Watch how to do this stuff. And he said to me, why? And I was like, well, because then you can, you know, and he said, but I know how to do what I want to do. And it was like fascinating because he wasn't thinking about doing it for the sole sake of progress, which I think as an adult, I, I, and I know many people just tend to overemphasize. He was doing it for the sake of enjoyment. And through that enjoyment, he'll learn to the level in which he wants and choose, is this the thing or not? Now, hopefully it's not because he can't be a professional Pokemon goer, I don't think. But still, it gets back to what you were talking about is, uh, are the goals internal? Is the rationale yours or someone else's will determine the way in which you approach that thing? Yeah, I love I love that story. And it's spot on. And I think that is often especially with with young kids but also for ourselves as we get so wrong is that <laughs> if you're gonna pursue something to a, a large depth to a great degree the driver almost ins- it has to be that internal it has to come from within it has to be like your your son like no why would i look at how to do that i'm just you know pursuing this because it's interesting to me like that has to do that has to be it so to me it's whether you're a parent whether you're a boss a leader a coach whatever have you is how do you create the environment where you're allowing that to develop and allowing that to happen and it sounds like with your son it's like okay great like i'm gonna offer you this but oh okay you're telling me you just want to like do this great like go for it like so often Instead, we see that like, oh, my kid is interested in Pokemon Go or my athlete or my worker is really good at this. And then we start like pushing, pressing, you know, you know, pushing them all the way up. And what happens is that often backfires because it takes away that joy and that interest that initially created that spark. And I think that does such a disservice. And instead, we need to be like, okay. How do we support this? Hopefully this isn't the thing they do for the rest of their life if it's something like Pokemon Go. But in this case, what is it doing? It's teaching them how to like figure out that interest, pursue something, like, you know, get a little obsessed with something for a while. And you hope that, you know, in his later years, well, he's got those skills. He understands what it means to be like passionate and interested about that. And when the time comes, he'll apply that to something that, you know, we might consider more productive. One thing that's always stuck with me about parenting, and and we'll move on, but is, you know, when your child comes into the world, they are a tree, let's call it a seed. It's planted. It's going to grow into the tree it was planted to be. Like, you're not going to turn a pine tree into an oak or whatever, right? So your job is to just make sure that the environment that they're growing in will help them be the biggest, best tree that they are. And and it's hard, right? It's hard. But I think when we try to do anything but that, we're doing it for the sake of ourselves as a parent, not for the sake of the child. 
I, I love that analogy. And maybe to back that up, I you know, again, for, gosh, a decade, I coached high school and college uh, sports, track and field. So I got to see the other side of it and the parents who kind of supported versus the parents who maybe tried to turn that 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 pine tree into an oak and there's you know the the outcomes were very clear you could see the kid who regardless of how good they were at the sport like enjoyed it got something out of it versus the kid who felt like you know they were being pushed or were only doing this because they were satisfying mom and dad's like athletic urge or need and those situations often didn't end up very well. So to me, again, it's that analogy. It's like, how do you create that environment to support that growth, to grow into whatever the biggest tree, you know, it ends up being. And if you do that, you're in a good spot and you're, you know, your kid's in a great spot as well. I'm with you. All right. So now what I want to transition to, your stance is that the way we approach this idea of toughness, grit, and mental toughness isn't quite right. Tell us uh, what you think we're currently getting wrong about toughness in the common lexicon. Yeah. So what we tend to do is we tend to think of grit, toughness, resilience, all of these things is almost being this kind of this quality that is almost like the stoic quality of putting your head down grinding through things it's that grind mentality ignore everything around us like forget your emotions what your feelings the doubts ignore them and just push through and what the research shows what top performers across domains show is that that can work in a very narrow you know field but what often happens is that backfires because it sets us up for, again, this environment where it's like, okay, I've just got to push through. Or as a leader, as a coach, as a parent, oh, I've just got to teach these kids to do really difficult things and put their head down and just grind through it. And I'm going to be kind of this disciplinary and hard ass to do so. And again, that tends to backfire. And the research is actually pretty clear. It's it's fascinating, especially I know we talked a lot about parenting, but parenting and coaching and leading is that those styles often lead to lower levels of discipline. It leads to less perseverance, it leads to people who give up more frequently and then also don't handle loss or, you know, or failure as well as all. Well, how can that be the case? Well, it's essentially the analogy I like to use is that method of just push through, grind through, etc. is essentially using fear as the motivator. And then it's essentially giving you a hammer and saying this hammer works for everything. And instead, what I'm saying, you know what? There might be times when you need to put your head down. But that is a very narrow view. And we have all these other tools that we can utilize. And often these other tools are way more appropriate. So instead, let's people let's give people the skill set so that they can they can pick the appropriate tool for the challenge that they are facing. And often that 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 tool is the opposite of the push grind through. Sometimes it's letting go. Sometimes it's creating space so that you can navigate the decision. Right. So if we do that, people are going to be in a better place to handle the challenges that they face in their life. But this idea of uh, perseverance, 
without context, the only tool we often have is head down. And, and perhaps that is what we have gotten wrong. We have espoused the idea of doing hard things and, and toughness and grit and all of that. But in today's society of, you know, easy bake oven type thing, we hear the headline and then all we know how to do is, wow, this feels hard. So I must be doing what they're telling me to do. I'm going to keep going and keep having it feel hard. And the result of that is what? When what what is the research show you when most people are pushing and and just uh, think this is the way to go through? Yeah. So what happens often is a, a, a couple different things. First, we often fail because that method doesn't always work very well. What happens is when we push, push persevere, et cetera, is we miss the signals that it might actually be better to quit in this situation. So the example I like to give here, and I was talking to a couple of world-class climbers who climb things like Mount Everest, is one said, Steve, you know, the hard decision for us isn't pushing to the summit when we see it there. Because we spent months and maybe years training to get to the summit and you're within a couple hundred meters and you can see it and the goal is right there. The hard choice is to say, hey, can I make it to the summit and then all the way back down? Which often means I need to have the self-awareness to quit, to not persevere, because that allows me to stay alive and meet more of my goals versus like just getting to the summit and then potentially not having the energy to do so. So the hard decision is having that self-awareness in that moment. So to me, <laughs> the perseverance kind of culture gets a couple things wrong is that, A, if the only tool we have is put our head down and persevere, we're, we're going to miss out on one of the crucial things in life, which is being able to switch and re-engage with a goal that might more align with our current values and current objectives. Often what you see is people stay too long in this persevere stage and they grit it out and instead of like knowing when to quit. And you see this in the workplace all the time. Like people suffer for years on a job that doesn't align with what they want or need out of a job but they stick with it because that's the hard thing to do instead of saying like, Hey, you know, maybe I can find something over here where I'm able to thrive in that better aligns with my talents and my abilities and my psychological and physical needs. And if I do that, I'm going to be in a much better place. Okay. So I love it. And now I'm confused. If I know Doing the hard things, pushing through, this, the struggle leads to the growth. I know all these things. Then how can I, in the middle of the struggle, know when it's time to quit? Because then it feels like, yet again, here you go, not being willing to do the hard thing. And that's where, that's why I wrote this book, because it really is about the nuance. And this decision is nuanced. So what do you need to do? You have to develop the skills that ability that give you the ability to have the self-awareness to know when to persist and when to quit. What are those skills? It is not ignoring everything like we often do in the kind of persevere push. It is learning to read your feelings and emotions so that you can understand the signals that are coming. And the way I like to look at it again is being able to distinguish what is real, maybe a real threat 
versus what is just fake in your body trying to protect you, right? So I'll use the simple example in running. If I go out and I run and I I run something really hard, initially that alarm is going to go off in my head and it's going to say, hey, Steve, this really hurts. Quit, quit, quit. Well, that's fake because I know I can go more. Like I know I can keep going. But if all of a sudden, let's say my, my quad or hamstring starts to hurt, that's a real signal because often that means like, hey, I'm about to strain this muscle and that would lead to actual physical damage. And I'm much better just calling it quits and then coming back, you know, in a couple days when this is healed versus total catastrophe of, you know, pulling the muscle, what have you. We need to be able to separate and distinguish that nuance with whatever we're, we're facing. And what research shows is the best performers, and they've looked at, again, from athletes to uh, stockbrokers, actually, to military professionals and special forces, is they have this almost nuanced ability to, to separate the signals coming into their body, their feelings, their emotions, all of those internal signals, and read them so that they understand what's appropriate or not. I need to know more. I need to know how to do it. Asking people to evaluate their emotions and uh, really understand what are they telling me is like a superpower. I use as an example, let's say you want to be a content creator or you want to be a thought leader, but you don't love public speaking. Let's just use that as an example because so many people really get super nervous about it. You're walking up to that stage. It's your first talk. There's a thousand people. You're going to have somewhere between anxiety and full-blown panic or something, right? How do you know this is in service of the thing I want? This is a positive emotion, even though it feels really scary or this is that pulled hamstring time for me to to bow out so that's really difficult and the way i'd ask, i'd answer that is it starts well before you walk out on that stage and this is where doing hard things come into play is to understand our internal world we have to spend time there and sit with it so i'll give you the example going back to kids and you'll probably know this is when when a kid is <laughs> you know four or five years old and they throw a tantrum and you ask, hey, what's wrong with you? Like, what's the problem? They have a very limited vocabulary to tell you what the problem is. You know, every answer might be, I'm sad, right? Well, as an adult, we might say, instead of I'm sad, we might say, oh, I'm frustrated or lonely or feel jealous or feel unwanted or whatever have you. There's more nuance there for the same emotion that we're experiencing. The same thing goes with everything else is if we can you know, sit with and experience emotions and even try to label them and distinguish them, then we're better able to uh, navigate our internal world like the you know, first grader or five-year-old versus you know, the hopefully fully formed adult who understands some of these things. So going back to you know, the person getting onto stage, well, hopefully... You didn't just walk out onto, you know, have your first speaking gig be in front of a thousand people. <laughs> Hopefully you spent time maybe in front of a friendly audience, friends, family members. 
Hopefully you then went to a small audience, etc. And you're going to feel and experience different emotions and you understand, hopefully, the nuance behind, oh, this is just my ego talking because it's afraid a little bit that I'm going to get out on stage and like mess up and be embarrassed. And that's why I feel this anxiety. But guess what? I've done the work. I've done the preparation. I've given this speech many times before. That's not what occurs. That's not what happens. So you can start to distinguish that. The second thing that I think is really helpful is it's not just understanding your your emotions that helps you do this thing. In the moment as you're walking up to, on that stage is stress tends to narrow us. It tends to focus us on the threat itself. So when you're about to head on that stage, all our mind is thinking about is the threat of speaking in front of this audience. It can't feel anything else. It can't see anything else. So what happens is in those moments, we have to give it perspective. We have to essentially zoom out. So anything you can do to almost force your brain and your mind to gain some perspective in that moment will help you be able to distinguish what is real or not. It's the same as in when you're, you know, again, the running example of that first moment that it feels, you know, painful, my body says, oh, you're in danger. Like you're going to overheat and die. And I have to give perspective and be like, no, I'm not. I'm fine. I've been through this before. So in that moment, there's there's several things. Again, many I outline in the book, but your self-talk can give perspective. You know, you can sit there and be like, hey, at the end of the day, this is just given a speech. This isn't life or death. I'm not at war, right? I don't need to have this fight or flight response. There's different, like almost physiological tricks you can use. One that I use is, as a person who wears glasses is, and there's research behind this, if I literally take my glasses off and just see a bunch of blurry, almost perspective, <laughs> what happens is the brain actually zooms out and essentially creates space because I've taken this broad perspective where I can't see details. So it almost right. like shifts the brain and out of this like hyper emotional state and says, okay, we're going broad perspective. Now, if you're not lucky enough like me to be able to do that, there's some fascinating <laughs> research that shows again, if instead of focusing maybe on like, you know, the podium or one person in the audience, if you take a broad perspective and just look at the horizon, the same perspective shifting thing can occur. Again, there's other things with breathing and all sorts of stuff, but there's a lot of ways where we're essentially trying to zoom out and create space. Thanks for that. And yeah, as you mentioned, you talk about a lot of them in your book, which is Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong and the Surprising Science of Real Toughness. And I, I found that section on emotions, listening to your body, uh, so important because it adds a level that is not out there, right? And, and I think that's to your point. It adds the level of it's not about just pushing through. And when you get to this, when we talk about all the things we just went through, you realize the more you do these hard things, you will then start to learn what is your body saying. You can't, you can't not interpret it. Your body will force you to feel these things. And then probably after the fact, say, okay, how did that feeling line up with reality, line up with my result? And so again, it becomes this cyclical thing, which we call growth. It, exactly. I mean, all you're doing is, you know, we we think about training our body all the time. 
in terms of physical pursuits, but we often neglect that we can train our mind and that whenever we're going through a challenging, stressful, whatever, hard time, you're essentially training your mind how to respond to the world around it. And our brain works predictively. So if you consistently tell it like, hey, these things are threatening, these things are are items to avoid, then it's going to comply. It's going to say, oh, you know what? We're going to avoid this and I'm going to send a whole heck of a lot of stress your way so that you avoid this thing. But but if you do difficult things and again, learn how to sit with it and navigate it and you're, you're again, not kind of freaking out and spiraling, your brain learns the opposite, which is, okay, yes, this is very difficult. Yes, this might create some anxiety, but we can get through this and here's how and here are the ways and here are the things that are real and we need to pay attention to and here are the things that aren't. What else do you think is something people commonly believe about the idea of persistence that we might be getting wrong? Yeah, so I think the other thing that that really stuck out to me in researching and writing this book on what we get wrong is how we create the environment or space in a leadership role to allow people to do that. Because we often think of, especially in sports, but also in, in, in with uh, CEOs and executives and leaders in the workplace, is we often think, oh, the way to create teams and organizations that are resilient is to create almost an environment that is incredibly controlling, disciplinarian, like my way or the highway, this is how you do things. Almost, you know, to use the sports analogy, the kind of Bobby Knight way of doing <clears> things, right? This is this is it. We're going this way. I am the leader. You listen to me. You follow. And we often think in those environments, like that creates people who, you know, are are disciplined and tough. But if you look at, again, the research, it shows the exact opposite. And there was this fascinating study that some uh, organizational psychologists did on teams in the NBA where they looked at these coaches who were kind of this authoritarian style coach. And they looked at the effect that had on the players that were under them. And they looked at, I think it was like six or seven years of data in the NBA And what they found is that if a player played for an authoritarian coach, their performance for the rest of their career took a notch downwards. And then even more interesting is their so-called negative or aggressive fouls, like technical fouls in the NBA, which are essentially, you know, notions of aggression. Those went up after they played for authoritarian, you know, style coach, which is a signal of like, hey, you don't have the emotional control to handle yourself in these difficult moments where you might be fired up and you just created, you know, you just let yourself go and did this technical foul. And the most interesting thing I think on this study is that effect lasted for the rest of their career, even after they went to play for another coach. So you have this almost lasting effect. And I think if we look at, okay, where do we get it wrong? Well, it turns out the John Woodens, the Steve Kerrs, to use the modern example, the Pete Carrolls of the world for football, the coaches who create, yes, they're they're creating environments. Yes, they're doing incredibly hard practice and difficult things, but they're doing it in a way that is autonomy supportive, that you know allows people to fail and mess up but then correct and get better they are doing out of place of hey 
almost like love and cohesion instead of fear and you know punishment when you do that people thrive are more disciplined more persistent all of those good things i can't help but to be reminded of a recent episode we did nate zinser we talked about kind of a similar topic here confidence and one thing he really highlighted for me was the story you have in your in your brain will actually impact your physiology so all golfers know this like you're thinking don't shank this shot don't don't slice it because there's people watching you will and a lot of people know that simon sinek has this great story where he talks about skiers who say avoid the trees are more likely to hit the trees than skiers who say look for the path what would this um, authoritarian coach why would that impact your performance and i i do wonder if one of them is the thought process of you got to get it right you have to you push so hard changes your physiology in a way that doesn't allow your natural talents to come out and doesn't allow you to try the things that are going to do the the hard play and then potentially succeed or fail and learn from that failure. I think you're spot on because what it does is it puts us in an avoidance mindset. Right. Because we're trying not to screw up. We're trying not to do the thing. And just like the examples you gave from the previous guest is when we try not to do something, when we try and avoid something, there you go. Our our brain gets stuck on it. It it doesn't register the void. It picks out the thing. So we end up doing the thing. And also, as as you mentioned there, there's fascinating research behind it that shows again, <laughs> if we approach things with this avoidance mindset, our physiology and our hormones follow suit. There was a fascinating research study done on professional rugby players that showed essentially if before a game they their coaches focused on hey you know don't do this you know avoid this player or last time you messed up this tackle so I need you to work on this tackle if they did that versus gave them you know positive feedback on you know almost approach goals when they when they had the avoidance goals or the avoidance like critique, cortisol levels went through the roof, and then they played worse. When they had this kind of approach orientated, hey, here's what you did right, testosterone levels go up, and they played better. So it's different stress like responses just based on like the information we're giving. And I'm not saying, hey, never neg- ne- never critique your athletes or never give constructive critiques in, in the workplace, but the timing of it matters a lot. If you're doing it right before they're about to go, you know, step on stage or step up to the batter's box, well, that negative thought is going to take over. That avoidance mindset is going to take over and put them in a bad spot. So if you're going to offer criticism or critiques, you got to do it well away from the actual event they're going to do. We've talked about at depth, understanding the inner game, understanding emotions, what they're telling you. Do you think that is like prerequisite number one is understand internally what's going on? Yeah, I I really do. I think that especially now it's something that we're often told to neglect. So it's, it's foundational. Okay. There's two other things I wanted to just briefly discuss. We don't have to go in depth because it's in your book, but I think these really jumped out to me. So the first one 
was this idea that you can respond instead of react. Give us the the general idea of that, how that helps us deal with tough things. Yeah, so reacting is essentially this instantaneous, quick, uh, quick reaction, for lack of a better term, which is we feel the difficult moment, we feel the stress, and we jump to the thing. Why do we jump to the thing? Because our brain and our body are looking for that safety mechanism, that escape route, and it we tend to react right it's the it's the best example i can give is if you've ever been in in an argument with your spouse or a significant other and you end up saying something that like you would never say that isn't real that you deeply regret but why did you say that because you were in this highly stressed highly threatened state and often our brain just jumps to the easiest thing that he thinks okay this will get us out of that And responding instead is essentially creating the space where you don't have that jump, but you have just that moment where it's like, okay, I have more than this one path. I have multiple paths I can take. And in those difficult moments, you want to give your brain the space to be able to think, okay, what path is going to be the productive path? What path is going to lead me to the outcome that I need? And we can train that ability up. Yeah, it reminds me of Viktor Frankl, and we used to teach it at at Covey, which is this idea of separating stimulus from response. And it's one of the most core components of my life is just recognizing we don't control the stimulus. We control the response. And then just elongating that space will change the response potentially for the better. It always resonated with me. Exactly. I love I love that that work that you guys did, that Viktor Frankl did, because it really is. The way I like to look at it is generally during very difficult things, it's almost like a snowball gets pushed down the hill. Yeah. <laughs> and if you just it and it can just spiral out of control and grow and grow and grow. But if we can create that space for our response, it's almost like we're just slowing it down a little bit so that we can handle it so that we can redirect it or stop it versus just letting it get out of control. A lot of times people who want to achieve, want to strive, uh, interested in a lot of things, do put a lot of pressure on themselves and also want to take control of a lot of it. So if there's something hard, let me solve it. Like I can, but sometimes that control can actually be detrimental And that's what I've learned. Like I will go into psychotic mode. I'll work for 14 hours straight for five days and I might get it accomplished, but at what cost in the long run? And so I think a lot of what you talked about helped me realize that you can still get it done and perhaps in a better, more creative and more sustainable way by taking some of the approaches we're talking about. Same outcome from a results perspective, but better secondary outcome from a personal perspective. Exactly. And I think that's what it, a lot of this is, is often we get in our own way because we put these artificial maybe constraints on us and we think, oh, okay, like I've got to get this done. I've got to, you know, control this 100%. When in reality, for most things, not everything, but for most things, that's not true. 
that's this artificial constraint that that increases the pressure and increases the stress around us. So ironically, sometimes to be quote unquote tougher in a more productive stance is being able to let go in the right moments. And if you talk to, you know, elite athletes are really good at this is that often our inclination during those hard moments or those, you know, um, difficult competitions is to take control and push. But I love using the example of like a sprinter of Usain Bolt, because if you watch him race during the most difficult moment, during the time when the pressure is on at the Olympic Games or what haven't have you, you watch him and he is trying to let go. Because he is relaxing and trying to relax into it because he knows he he has done the work. He knows what to do. And if he tries to force it or push or whatever have you, it will actually tighten tighten him up and cause him to run slower. So I, I love that analogy for the rest of us is often our inclination is to push, to tighten up. But often that backfires, and if we just kind of step back and let go just a little bit, it allows our body, it allows our brain to do what it knows how to do, to do no, to do what we've trained it to do, and we perform better and are in a better place. I love it. Well, Steve, one last question because I think it wraps everything up. You talk about quitting, and you talk about how quitting is human, or at least thinking about it. How can we change the way we think about quitting that actually makes us more likely to succeed? So I think one of the, again, major problems that we have is we've made quitting as this big, bad, horrible thing that tough people never consider. And when we come to things from that approach, what we've essentially done, as we talked about earlier, is made turned ourselves into this avoidance mindset where you say, oh, this is the bad thing I'm going to avoid. When the reality is, and I did this, I sat down with some of the best endurance athletes in the world who had made Olympic games, you know, national records, all sorts of stuff. And I just asked them, how many of you had had the thought of, hey, I want to quit. I want to find a, a hole to step on and to get me out of this race. And every single one did. Even people had won like, you know, major, major marathons. And the reality is that's normal because our brain likes to protect us from doing difficult things. So I think one of the things first is to embrace the reality of thinking about quitting as normal. But I think the other part of having that mindset instead of avoiding it is we are actually training our mental muscle when we give ourselves that choice where it's like, oh, well, I could quit. Because what you're doing is anytime you're in that moment where it's like you have that fork in the road, I could quit, I could continue. And instead of being like, no, no, never think about quitting, it's a legitimate option. Well, that gives us the opportunity to train our mind, to train our brain how to navigate that. And then also to ingrain or groove what I'd say the more productive path is, which is, hey, hey, I can wrestle with this and take this, this, you know, in a positive direction. And there, there's actually a lot of research that shows when you reframe things like that, what you're actually doing is training, you know, they call it learned hopefulness, where you're training the hope, where you're saying, hey, I'm wrestling with this difficult moment. My mind is looking for an out. 
but I can find hope in this this almost disparaging, stressful environment where I say, oh, you know what? I have a choice, but in this moment, I think I can get through. In this moment, I think I have what it takes based on the information I'm re- you know, receiving and the work that I've done to get, you know, a positive outcome out of this stressful or difficult, you know, spot. I have to tell you, I, I know for a fact that that works. Now, I'm not going to go into it because we're at the end of the episode. All right. But I know for a fact that that exercise that you just talked about and, and it works, it can change the way you approach a difficult situation. I didn't know the science behind it, but I've done it and it has helped. So not to bring this up at the end, but I think we're in an era right now of just an overemphasis on previous masculine ideals, if you will, right? As a man, like you grin and bear it and um, we've gotten too soft, right? Like it, it was the millennials and now it's the Gen Zs and too soft and we get, we have to go back to the old ways and I wish we could go back to when you could actually, you know, say what you want is on your mind. And I I just think it's missing the growth and the nuance that actually allows us to be better as humans, as individuals, as a society. And that's what you talk about in your book. It's it's called do hard things because we need to do hard things, but we can do them in a way that is beneficial and sustainable. So, Steve, first, I just really want to say thanks for coming on. The book is Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong and the Surprising Science of Real Toughness. Steve, for those that love this, obviously, we'll link to the book. Where else can we find you to learn about this work more? Yeah, you can look me up on all social. I'm at Steve Magnus. And then I also do a free weekly newsletter, which is uh, through my uh, joint project called The Growth Equation, which you can find at uh, thegrowtheq.com. And we will link to that. Again, Steve, thank you so much. This was fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. This was a blast. This week's guest was Steve Magnus. As always, the episode was hosted by Chris Stemp and edited by yours truly, John Rojas. Steve's book, Do Hard Things, Why We Get Resilience Wrong and the Surprising Science of Real Toughness is available wherever books are sold. And now the quick housekeeping items. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. And if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website smartpeoplepodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up and we'll see you all next episode.